0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Episode 76 of The Julia LaRoche Show. I am pleased to bring to you this conversation with Herb Greenberg, the legendary financial journalist and also now a senior editor at Empire Financial Research, where he writes two paid newsletters. He's also the author of the must read Herb on the Street column that you can find on his Substack as well as his LinkedIn. I'll drop some links in the show notes here I've known herb for many many years when i was first starting out in the business journalism world and in this conversation we revisited his more than 40 years in business journalism and picking out some lessons along the way we also got his take on these messy markets and this crazy economy we discussed recent events including the banking crisis and the collapse of silicon valley bank we got into short selling we also discussed his recent shift from that more short bias to that long bias in his research today as well as uh, some red flags that can come up for investors we also delved into topics around longevity and retirement and i have to say This conversation was full of wisdom and lessons on both life and investing. I really, really enjoyed having Herb on, and I think he will too. By the way, if you are new to the channel, welcome. It is so great to have you. If you don't mind, please hit that like button and ring that notification bell so you won't miss any future episodes. And if you are listening to the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and a review so you can help more folks find these episodes. Your support means so much to me, and it will help me bring in some more amazing guests like Herb. Again, I hope you all enjoy this episode with Herb Greenberg. Herb Greenberg, Senior Editor at Empire Financial Research. It is so great to see you again, and it's great to welcome you on the show. Thanks so much for joining me, Herb.
1: Julia, it is a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, I would love to start with a bit about your own background for the folks watching and listening You and I, we crossed paths when I worked at CNBC. I was an intern there and then did a a year-long, I guess, I don't know, I was a news associate then. And then I worked at Business Insider for many years and, of course, covering a lot of, I guess, activist hedge fund stories back then. And I was kind of hoping we could revisit your own career because I got to say, you're a legendary writer um, on all things like markets. And I was kind of wondering, how did you, I know you grew up in Miami, went to the University of Miami. How did you first get interested in pursuing a career in business journalism? What was that for you?
1: Totally through the back door. And I'm not even sure you could do it today. Uh, it was a very different time because we're talking um, the early 70s. Um, I wanted to be a radio disc jockey. Um, and uh, I had no real interest in, in being a journalist. Uh, I uh, just... <laughs> so I went to... Um, Miami Dade Community College, now I think it's called Miami Dade College, for the first two years uh, of my college career. And there, um, I went to the careers office, and I said, I want to be a disc jockey. What are the courses I have to take? And they said, "Um, you have to go to take communications courses. And I said, communications courses? They said, yeah, journalism. And I said, journalism? I don't don't really know much about journalism. And um, I didn't really want to write. But I was very lucky because um, I went over to, uh, you know, I had to do that. So um, it turned out that Miami, that this college had a fantastic journalism professor who had really been someone who years earlier had taught so many great journalists in Miami back in the day uh, as a high school teacher, actually a high school journalism teacher. And she's extraordinarily well-known. And I went in and uh, she told me to um, write, you know, work on the, the, the 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 college newspaper, and I went in and wrote a story, and for whatever reason, I was hooked. And it was just a, it was about a play, it might've even been a, just a press release about, a, you know, rewriting a press release about a play that was gonna be on campus. And um, one thing led to another, and I just, just sort of fell into it, and she recommended me for a job at the Miami News to be a copy boy back in the day. These days, this is a job, this was a job I would do early morning, 5 a.m. to I don't know, you know, uh, uh, noon and then go to school at one o'clock in the afternoon, several days a week. That was, you know, you go in, you, you get the mail from the, post, the mail bags from the post office, sort the mail, fill up glue pots, change ribbons and teletype machines, things that don't exist anymore today. Um, and I just really pushed it. And I ended up working with the news when the uh, Republican and Democrat na- national conventions were down there. Where I'd riot, drive their Ford Pinto that said Miami News on the side, trying to get tear gas, things like that. And then um, I was looking for uh, there was the Miami Herald gave an annual scholarship to one uh, student every year uh, from Miami Day to go to the University of Miami. I had my heart set by then on going to the University of Florida, which had a much better journalism school, the University of Miami in those days, two journalism professors, why would I want to go there? And I also wanted to get the heck out of Miami because back then, living in Miami was had to be the most boring place on earth to live. It was hot, it was humid. It was the end of the earth. And so um I get the scholarship and I and I win, you know, the scholarship. You have to compete. And uh and I, I call up the Miami Herald and say, is there any way you can get me to the University of Florida? They said, No, this is to the University of Miami. It was the Jimmy called the Jimmy Burns Memorial uh scholarship. And um, and so I went to the University of Miami, and it turned out the University of Miami. Uh, was where I met some really great people. Uh, you know, it's like anything in college; it's the people you meet, and people who went on to do some really great things were in the classes I was in. Uh, worked in the on the on the newspaper, ended at the Miami Herald, um, and then got out of college. And when I got out, I I wasn't really Miami Herald material, to be honest. Um, you know, I was a late bloomer, and I don't mind saying that because. I'm a very strong believer that people that don't fit the mold can actually go on and do pretty good things. So they sent me up, Knight Ritter, which then I leaned heavily on Knight Ritter, uh, said, Hey, up the road, we have our smallest newspaper. It's called Boca Raton News. Why don't you go up there and interview? They got me a job. They got me an interview there on and, and it. And I hit it off with the editor and the managing editor and they hired me. And it was one of those just, great experiences because i this is a paper where there was a sunday business section and the sunday business section nobody wanted to do this is 1974 watergate had just hit everyone wants to find the next watergate at the parks and recreation department or whatever it is and no one wanted to do the business thing so it was an interesting place because a lot of very successful people retired in Boca Raton and a lot of very successful people came down to do conventions at Boca Raton Hotel and Club back then. And so I sort of raised my hand and said, Hey, I'll do it. And I just sort of defaulted into being their business reporter, doing the business stories. And that lasted about a year. I wanted to move on. I went to a trade publication, which was uh called Amusement Business. Interesting story. Amusement Business was actually, I went to Nashville because I wanted to move, I wanted to get out of Miami. And I kind of took an interest in circuses and carnivals and auditoriums and arenas and that whole entertainment industry. An amusement business, I started freelancing for them when I was down in Miami and uh, they offered me a job. And interestingly, amusement business was where Jimmy Buffett worked before he, he worked there a very short period of time before he went on to greatness. This was the original Billboard magazine. So we shared offices with Billboard magazine. Billboard magazine started as the outdoor billboard, which was the industry publication for back then, vaudeville, circuses, carnivals, and all that. So I went into did that for a year, got bored, wanted to get back to journalism, and then ended up um, going back to Knight Ritter and saying, hey, guys, I want to get back to daily journalism. I've had enough, you know, running around and uh, uh, visiting state fairs and knowing carnies and all that kind of stuff. I uh, said, They put me up to several places to go interview. And one was the Detroit Free Press. And thankfully, I did not get that job. In fact, I totally it would have been a city side job. I wasn't interested in it. And they and I went and interviewed at the St. Paul Pioneer Press. Now, this is about as far away from Miami as you can get. I'm excited about being in St. Paul, not as excited about being in Detroit back then. And even though Detroit then was a fantastic newspaper town. So I went to uh, St. Paul, interviewed, big, bushy hair. Business editor was like, you know, I was like the last guy he wanted to hire. And um, but then I was persistent and he ended up hiring me and we ended up becoming good friends. And it was a wonderful break because back then, St. Paul, Minneapolis was a mini Chicago. It was a fantastic place. This is before every company was merged away. You covered everything back then. I mean, I covered the airlines, there were two airlines then, Republic Airlines and Northwest, Northwest Airlines. I covered retail. I covered, I mean the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis was there. I covered the railroads, Burlington Northern. I got to, you know, interact, even though I didn't know I was going to interact with the CEO and president of, of, of Burlington Northern Railroad and the Sioux lines. I covered a lot. And then about three years later, and I met my wife there, and I covered 3M. I covered the 3M company. She was in the PR department there. And so I covered the 3M company. It was just interesting and I started getting you know I was learning a lot back then and I was trying to get my edginess a little bit was starting to show them about you know the sort of style I had and then for whatever reason then the big break came and the big break was um, I got a call from Crane Chicago Business which was then a very hot and still very good uh, business publication but back in the day it was known for doing really risque things it was uh, you know they made their name by 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 publishing like the 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 five year plan the confidential five year plan for Sears Sears Roebuck back then which existed back then I caught a lot of flack for it and they recruited me there were there were there was a PR guy in Chicago who told them they should call me and they recruited me to come work for them and I went to work for them and I always say Cranes was the boot camp of my career I worked for Greg David who was the managing editor back then um, he was the guy who really was very tough to work for. Very difficult editor, but very good. I needed that at that time in my career. I learned about point of view view journalism. They sort of patterned themselves off of Business Week back in those days, which was known as a point of view forward spin journalism, where you had to have an opinion. It was very hard for me to say to have an opinion about what was going to happen. I covered every annual meeting of every company I covered. That means going out to the hinterlands and the suburbs of Chicago and being the only person other than the management sitting in, in meetings. In the annual meetings, just going everything. You just covered everything back then. And I covered different mm-hmm. industries back then, the food industry and the restaurant industry, whatever. And then after a few years, I got tired of that because I tend to get tired of things. And I called up a friend at the Chicago Tribune said, hey, is there anything going on? And they said, hey, yeah, we happen to have an opening. Went to the Chicago Tribune. Gosh, got to cover the food mm-hmm. industry and all other things there. And, I, and then I got to become their New York financial correspondent. And then I went to an arbitrage firm for one year, and then you know, the night of the crash, and then while I was at the arbitrage firm, this was in 86 to 87. A friend calls from who I'd met in Chicago at the Chicago Tribune, and he had since gone to the San Francisco Chronicle. And he said, um, hey, we have a column we started here, but we'd like to know if you're interested in doing it. And I said, Nah, I'm working at this arbitrage firm. And not that I was happy at the arbitrage firm, I was a little bit of a fish out of water there, but I said I was happy, and you know, there was good potential upside. And I hadn't much thought about doing a column, but then the night of the 1987 stock market crash, I was on that job. And I saw what happened at that firm that day. And I, that night I was supposed to go to a financial accounting class. And it was, you know, class canceled. I went out on Nassau street in New York and Nassau street, you know, is usually just teeming with people. It was back then in the day, you know, it was empty. And I thought to myself, I said, all these people who are being laid off, who are going to lose their jobs today, they're more qualified than I am to hold the job I'm I'm running. And I'm not that happy. So I ended up um, going home, calling my friend on the West Coast. You know that job you called me about? He said, still open. I went out. I sold him an idea idea on how I would create, well, not create, the column already existed. It was written by two people. It was was a a six-day-a-week column. I said, this is what I want to do. And i felt ready for it and that i started that column and the rest you know in my life is is history and um it's been a great career and i, I learned it again through the back door making a lot of mistakes um not knowing what i was doing it's not that i still do uh but uh it, it, and it, it really it, i hit business journalism and i would say the golden era of business journalism and being in san francisco during the dot-com boom you know having a front row seat to that writing the stories that's when i got very aggressive writing short stories and you know you had all of the investment banks in san francisco that were pumping out a lot of this garbage mm-hmm. and i was a guy right front and center in front of the san francisco chronicle and this is before and after the internet so what you had was you had the transition i lived through the transition when my stuff was very proprietary back then so i could write a story that had some edge and back then Jim Cramer could say, hey, I want my Morgan Stanley salesman to fax me out the column every day. So people started getting my column in New York because it wasn't available elsewhere. And then you know, CNBC started coming along and then the internet came and then things started to change. But I maneuvered it and um, uh, it was a wonderful time to be a business journalist. And I'm not convinced you could do exactly what I did today uh, because there's just so much information and time has changed so much.
0: I was going to ask you about that the golden age of business journalism I love that remind me your column was that herb on the street or what was what was your no, column No you're like? going to
1: die you're going to it was business oh. insider what? I was the original business insider in fact Henry I Did think, Henry know this. that Yes so <laughs> okay. I was the original business insider and what's beautiful about that is I wanted to buy the name from the chronicle and at the time, the Chronicle wanted to, I wanted to buy, I think the URL, they wouldn't sell it to me or whatever it was, they wouldn't sell me the name. Henry obviously had the money to buy the name because I was, you know, I'm always entrepreneurial. It's this part of me and um, they wouldn't give it to me. And, uh, and and when Henry started, I think I once sent him, I still have my AOL address, which is Biz Insider. So I started, oh, here's what's interesting. I started, I, I can't believe I did all this. I started, um, while I was at the Chronicle, I struck a deal with them because they, I had a syndication for my column, syndication wasn't on that well. But at the time, AOL was paying, they were paying content creators back then to content creators, they were paying people like me to uh, if we put our content on their, their white. So I created a website called Biz Insider, hired a, a, a producer, Hired some people, Rev Shark, this guy Rev Shark is at the street.com. He was originally on my website. I met him through the Yahoo message boards or wherever he used to attack me. Um, Motley Fool was just starting back then. And Dan, Dan Case, um, who was Steve Case's brother, was the head of uh, investment banking at H. Hamburgton Quist, which was an investment banking firm back then. And I went to him and I said, hey, I'd like to do something maybe with AOL. And he introduced me to his brother. And they let me start this site on AOL. They paid for it. And I split the proceeds a syndication deal with the chronicle and i always want to think that jim got the idea for the street from what i was trying to do except he was far more better capitalized than who i was he you know i had little kids at the time i couldn't take the, any kind of risk to expand that from beyond, beyond what it was um because i had a full time job i was just one person and you know i had people with me but i never really was able to take it to another level for better or for worse uh, but Biz Insider, yeah. So I was the original Biz Insider, but it was Business Insider became Biz Insider. Uh, and then when I went to the street.com, we called it Herb on the street because I was Herb on the, you know, at the street. The Wall Street Journal did not like that. They tried, They, I think they were threatening to sue us. So I, but I said, you can't sue it. I'm Herb and I work at the street. So, so it sort of is stuck and we, it all worked out.
0: It, it definitely did. Well, great name. Um, you had it first. Uh, okay. So I want to ask you, like, if you look back on your career, do you have any sort of memorable stories, formative moments for you? Um, you know, I guess like you've done a lot. Is there anything that kind of sticks out to you?
1: Well, there are, there are plenty. Um, you know, I mean, I'll go back. It's funny when you say that. So, if you really want to go, what hits my brain? Yeah. It was a story I never talk about. It was a story at the San Francisco Chronicle, at the, at the, no, at St. Paul Pioneer Press on an auto dealer who was having issues. And um, his name was Jerry Perkle. I don't know why I remember that name, but I remember enjoying writing that story. It was about a, It was just about an auto dealer that there was, financial stress at and i remember that story as an early story and, and another story well a lot of the things i did then because i did i did thumb suckers back then you know i did a lot more positive stories um one of the, my favorite stories again it was more of a positive story was there was this legendary ceo of northwest airlines his name was donald nyrop he hated everybody and everybody seemed to hate him but he knew how to run an airline back in the day one of my favorite stories absolutely phase was writing a story about how they made their money by selling their jets in the used jet market. That was the real business Northwest Airlines was in back in the day. They owned their jets, they didn't lease them, they owned them and then they sold them back into third world countries and they made a lot of money on that business. So I wrote a whole story about it and then made the mistake of making a change last minute on the weekends. And there were those times, I think we were already at cold press where they pasted things in. I made a change and by the time it hit the Sunday paper, They pasted it in wrong, upside down, and backwards, and it was a mess. But I love that story. Um, more, more than that story, though, as I went on, there were so many. I mean, there were there were the there were the uh, there was the one of the stories I love to tell was, you know uh, when I was the Chicago Tribune, I did uh, mer- in the early days some merger um, uh, inspection, that type of thing, especially in the food industry in the day. And I used to get these tips from this guy, and it were really interesting tips. And we never knew who it was, but I was able to confirm the information. And uh, he was giving us great ideas on several stories, several big acquisitions that were about to occur. And my, I talked to my editor and we said, what's going on here? But hey, you know, and one of the acquis- one of the deals was, hey, the CEOs of a company called Jewel and Osco had met in Denver and uh, to discuss a deal, to discuss a merger. And I called and my, my editor said, why don't you call all the hotels in Denver? Back then you could do that kind of thing. Called all the hotels in Denver and I, I asked if this uh Guy West Christopherson had been staying there, and I found a hotel he was staying at. And uh, and anyway, we published the story, and they ended up merging. But year then a year later, when I went to New York to be the financial correspondent for the Tribune, get this uh, this um, notice, you got to get down to the SEC to um, uh, down to the Justice Department, or maybe it was the SEC. To there there was a uh, there was a case they were filing against some guy named Dennis Levine. I never heard of this Dennis Levine. Um, and, uh, you know, he was involved in these, um, in, uh, in insider trading. I look at the list. It's Jewel, GD Searle, my companies. I go, Oh my my God, this is who I was talking to. But I go to the, I go to the arraignment and I go up to him and say, Hey, I think we've met. And, and, and what had happened is I was getting these tips from some guy calling me. It wasn't this guy's voice a week or two later. Or whatever the time span was another guy was 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 arrested in this was 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 arrested in this case was indicted and it was a guy named robert wilkes and i don't i don't know that i went down there to see his arraignment but i called his house and it was his voice it was the voice of the person who had been calling me a year earlier then i called back i was so like I, i left a message and then i was like so taken i called back and then his daughter's voice was on the phone um or his child's voice was on the phone. And, which made me feel horrible. Um, but anyway, uh, those kinds of things, and then I've had the frauds. I've had, you know, there's just, there's been so many, uh, you know, they all have their little twists and turns. And, you know, there's some that I got right and some I got wrong.
0: I wanna try to zoom in on this, you know, golden age of business journalism. And I just wonder like, what do you think of the state of, um, we can keep it a business journalism, of business journalism today?
1: Hmm. It's it depends what you're talking about and wh- how you define journalism. You know, do you define it as newspapers? Do you f- define it as information? Uh, you know, there's a lot of good journalism out there. Right. There's I mean, I can go down. I, I what I the well, one thing I've always loved about Twitter is it links me to stories that I ordinarily wouldn't have seen. Um. So. You know, whether it's the Financial Times, which I would say is the edgiest of the publications, or it's the journal, you know, it's the same cast of characters, or it's Bloomberg. There are great stories throughout and wonderful business journalism, you know, augmented by uh, ProPublica. Um, and then on the local angle, there's less and less, but even here in San Diego, um, I often will tweet out something from the, from the Tribune, just the Union Tribune, just because I know it's something the national audience is not watching. Um, so I think the state of business journalism is, is, is fine. It's competitive, but the part that concerns me or that's made it harder is that, you know, I used to have my short, my sources, right. When blogs came about my sources wound up shortcutting the middle guy, right. Because they all thought, you know, a lot of these people on wall street, they think they're geniuses, you know, they're, you know, they're um you know uh, you know they're they're they they think they should be the ones they have huge egos. What do you need the journalists for? So they just go through it and what they just they just sort of skip us. And even if it's the activist short sellers, the activist short sellers do it on their own. They don't need to come to a journalist to talk to a journalist. You know, Nate Anderson doesn't need to, he publishes himself. You know, if you talk to Nate Anderson at Hindenburg or you talk to Carson Block at Muddy Waters they view themselves as a form of journalism. They've taken off where journalists have left off because remember in journalism, there's fewer bodies. And I would go so far as to say stories that I wrote that helped make my career at the San Francisco Chronicle before they could count, uh, count um, eyeballs, those stories never would have been written today because people would have seen, nobody is reading that story, Herb. That's what I've said, even though the story probably led to somebody going to jail or helped people get out, but the stocks were too small, weren't as liquid. Whatever the case may have been, those stories aren't getting followed. They're just not getting tracked because there just aren't enough people. They don't have the headline-grabbing potential. You know, there's so many companies out there, public companies, and you know, try to get an editor interested in some company that's just not going to resonate. That it's hard to explain what the company does. So. I think that's where business journalism kind of falls off. And that's where it's having a problem. But the gap has been filled, in a sense, by the activists. Now, I'll say the difference between the activists and journalists is, you know how we, and I'm no longer formally a journalist, but I still have journalism in me, how we try to fact check things, how we try to understand, you know, using the word fraud. Okay. I never used the word fraud. I couldn't use the word fraud, even alleged fraud. The activists, they call things frauds. people on on social media always refer to things as frauds. Um, I always joke one day there'll be the lawsuit from hell, but that lawsuit really has never come. So I think you um you 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 have when business journalism falls down. It's just the lack of resources um, throughout the entire system to cover the smaller companies and to cover them aggressively. It's sort of like, um local journalism in general can't cover municipalities the way they used to so people can get away with um you know with you know finagling and doing things that they probably shouldn't without being called out so i think that's the concern i have um but i i i will never be one to sit here and bash the media because i spent years in the media and i think the media has always had flaws um but i'm a big supporter of it uh and i I, I, and when it does things well, it does it really well.
0: Yeah. I have to say, Herb, I've really enjoyed like just listening to you in the first uh, half of this discussion. And, um, you know, I, I had the opportunity to teach uh, some business journalism students during the pandemic. And if I ever had that opportunity again, you're the kind of person I would want talking to the students just because I feel like there's so many lessons in there. Um, sure. Anytime doing that work. Yeah. Okay. I do want to shift and talk about, um, Let's see. Let's do like the big picture. What is kind of your big picture assessment of both the markets and the economy today? What is that for you?
1: You know, it's interesting. I'm not um, a big picture type guy. But since I work at Empire, uh, which is a newsletter company, um, I have had, I've focused, I've found myself focusing on big picture things just because that's part of, they're part of the promotions we do and we try to have themes, um, and I've I've tried to be open to the changes in what how I have to view the world. Um, I've always paid attention to the markets. I'm of the belief that nobody can tell you what will happen at any time because I used to joke back in the day that the person who's quoted at the, that moment as being right is the genius for the day, and that person is quoted forever until the next genius arises because usually people who are right end up being wrong. Um, so with that caveat, look, I think the markets, you know, I'm, I, I was at a short bias research firm. I, I co-fed it. Um, uh, and I, uh, I left it when things got tough just because I felt I could wanted to do something else. And I felt that the, you know, I looked at what the Fed was doing and how the Fed kept rates ridiculously low for so long. And I think we're paying the price of that today. And I know COVID came along and I know that we had to have the handouts i get it i get it and i tilt left just so you know um but even as somebody who tilts left i tilt left socially very left socially um just on on social issues just because that's who i am but i feel that things are so messed up i mean i i have something coming out i think i wrote something actually i wrote something the other day um on the fed and how you know the fed is so screwed up and i used to start I, I don't know if in this one i used a story but i always tell the story going back to my San Francisco days I met with the, the president of the Fed Robert Perry back then and we were talking and I had just moved there and it's real it was really expensive to move to San Francisco in 19, you know 1988 right and uh, I said that to him we' having coffee or lunch or in his office and he said um, he said I don't see that the data doesn't show that the data doesn't show that and, and I said well you know Talk to people, he said, and then he stopped and he said, you know, we have had trouble trying to recruit here because it's so expensive. And so that was, the, that was the lesson, the discrepancy between what's real and the data. So data can only take you so far in anything. I like data, I like using data. Use it right now with certain stock selections, with certain things I do, data can lead you in the right direction, especially if it's been back-tested in a certain way. But we have a Fed, and as I, I, I ended this piece the other day, Saying you know, you know the Fed. You know, you always. We all are novices. Most of us are novices when it comes to the economy and the Fed. A lot of people, everybody thinks they have and everybody thinks they know, but most of us don't really understand the nuances. And it's important the nuances of the Federal Reserve system. Spend time on it. I know I've spent a lot of time researching lately for something I'm working on, and there's so many twists and turns and so many things. And I said, you know, most of us are novices, and we want to think the Fed knows what it's doing and we want to think the fed isn't politicized and we want to think the fed will do the right thing but the reality is it doesn't know what it's doing it it's no different than us it's making things up as it goes along you know it's it, it, it you know it's made a lot of mistakes and you know i i don't think that saving depositors at svb is a mistake i think that's brilliant but how did they let SVP get in trouble in the first place when they're supposed to be overseeing it and they allow the the rules to change so what do I think I think the market that's a long-winded say way of saying the markets are messy um I can, I listen I have my favorite podcast I listen to you know for um invest in um it's it's the on the tape podcast with uh
0: I love you know, those with, guys with, yeah yeah with
1: guy, Adami with guy and, Danny, and, and, and Danny yeah. Moses and I think those guys probably are about as cogent and and um, just practical in their and common sense in their views, whether you agree with them or don't, they're very important to listen to. And I've been listening to them since the day they started. And I think when you listen to some of this, and you see even when they bring on a guy like Mike Wilson, who's a strategist at Morgan Stanley, and you listen, you know, he's now the guy, right? Because he's called it right. I don't know that he'll always be the guy. So you listen to this, and you and all you can do is mass all the information you have. And I think, you know, we all know that interest rates staying high at 5%. My sister and I are going back and forth, gee, you know, and there's another, I should maybe there's a C, she's telling me today, there's a CD at, at 6% or five, whatever. There are certain points where the market is screwed. Now, that said, now that I'm at Empire and I'm doing long biased research, which I enjoy and which I found companies that actually rock, have risen in this environment, you know, long-term, the markets tend to go. They could be flat for 10 years, who knows? But the market structure clearly has changed. Uh, you know, ETFs have played a role. There are a lot of changes in the markets. So what do I think about the markets term? I would tell anyone, especially somebody young, to just go ahead and keep funding your, your, your 401k plan and your IRA. I think that's the smart thing and the right thing to do. I wish I had been more aggressive at it. Um, and I think that just, you know, just continue. I'm a, I'm a big believer in that. Uh, I'm not a big believer. I think trading is hard. Um, I'm not a trader. I've tried my hand at it. I don't have the uh, the 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 uh, emotional um, <laughs> stability and wherewithal to do it. I have better things to do with my life than worry about how a stock is going to do at any given moment. I prefer long-term ideas that will work over the long term. Um, I think those will do well as long as you have the ability to walk the walk and talk the talk about long-term and patience and having patience. Um, I think the economy is craziest thing i've ever seen because you talk about you see all the white collar workers getting laid off and then you see i I was taking my grandkids were in town we went down to a to a like a a boardwalk here in san diego and um they had a java palooza for all the low end jobs you know they're trying like heck to hire people they can't find enough people the low end to work because so you have this disconnect in the environment right now. And the disconnect itself, there's this, Mike Green, who's this um, brilliant strategist. He, uh, he has this very interesting point where he talks about how passive investing, which is fueled by 401ks, could actually take a hit. And passive investing has fueled this market for 10 plus years, could take a hit because of these white collar workers are being laid off. So they're not going to be funding their retirement plans. So there's the dynamics, or I would like to say the gyroscope of everything going on it's pretty impossible to figure out. We just know things are kind of messy.
0: Yeah, markets are messy, the economy is crazy. There's some really interesting ideas in there and I'd like to kind of explore it a little bit with you. And um, let me just pull some of of these threads together. Okay, so um, you do long biased research now. Um, I think Mm -hmm. in the past you did more like short biased. Um, Mm -hmm. And you also mentioned that you kind of wish um, you were more aggressive with your own 401k and like this message to younger folks, keep on investing. did did um and maybe i'm telling off here did having more of a i i don't know like more of a if you did more short biased did that make you a bit more bearish or oh my god
1: that's a that is the best question anybody has ever asked me and i'm glad i can say it in a public forum i feel horrible look we do what i did for a living and you're the guy who's always raising red flags you can't be the guy who does it and if you're not authentic just might as well move on. I was surrounded by, and had access to, I would like to say some of the smartest people on Wall Street. And I am a, I tilt cautiously, just personally, that's my DNA. And I'd be ready to totally fund something, go into something, and then i talk to one of my sources. And they fly this thing out about the market about to fall. I mean, it's like the worst thing I could have was the access to the information I had. I mean, it it to this day, my wife and I talk about it. It's probably where my job got in the way, um, in the way. And um, but I at least I can say I whatever I wrote, I you know I you know I ate my own cooking. Uh, and um, and I think that that is a professional, um, potential professional um, uh, risk with being somebody who's constantly reporting on what's going to go down. And I did a lot on the markets too. So, you know, and, you know, bearish prognosticators make very strong, can make a very strong case. Um, my lessons over the years are just that longer term it works out even if you could go years of being flatlining and stock pickers actually can do very well. There was actually a very good piece I was reading the other day. And it, it was, I think Jason Zweig had written it. And it was, um, was somebody, it was about a study and it was about how actually it was the the, the, the basics of it was that how an individual investor can actually do better than the pros. And what I think is interesting, that wasn't, the, that was part of it. But what you learn from all this is we're all, in the press, we're quoting these hedge fund managers or quoting these pros, these little fund managers. You have to remember, they have a different, often have different, um, um, their business models are very different than an individual. They have quarterly performance that they have to meet. And there may be a great idea that they could say they wouldn't own today or tomorrow, that if you bought it today would be a good idea. Because you're willing to hold it for the long term. That's why I think these family offices, if you talk to analysts who work at family offices or hedge funds, the ones at family offices I think are much happier because there's patience there. They don't have to worry about, you know, the they don't have to worry about somebody yanking money out of their fund and putting them out of business. And that seems to be the dysfunction of running other people's money in such a you know, dynamic way as hedge funds have, and as, as the hedge fund environment has changed um so yeah it's um you know so i've learned a lot over the years i've interviewed i'd like to think that over my entire career having interviewed even when i was doing more long bias when i was doing my column interviewed some of the great mutual fund managers of the day um the great long investors of the day the great traders of the day um you know really understanding and looking back and seeing how some of these companies some of them you'd never even if you look at my portfolio the model portfolios I have, some of these companies, you no know, one ever talks about them, but they've been great compounders. They've just really done, not before I got involved, they were great compounders and they've gone and compounded for years and years and years. It just never, no one's ever talking about them in the press because who wants to talk about an insurance brokerage business? You know, yeah. who wants to talk about, you know, some of these companies? That's what I, I found the most interesting. And I think that's why, why I like even when you would look at Berkshire and you look at Munger and you look at at Buffett, as some people may think they're out of step on certain things, no. Something I tweeted today, you know, you know, they may seem, you know, irrelevant at times to people. Think you can argue what's relevant, but common sense never goes out of style, and that I think really does go for investing, and and what you buy. But you have to be willing to do to be independent and have your own brain and really have conviction, which is yeah. really hard for most people.
0: Yeah. And like, it brings up a couple of like mental models of like, you can have two seemingly opposing ideas in your mind at once. And then also you mentioned Charlie Munger. Some of these things makes me think of like his maxim is like, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. So understand like the business models and how they work as well. Like,
1: well, you hit good? on something else. Show me the incentive. So in theory, what you should be doing. And this is really hard. You want to see the incentive. The real incentive is in the proxy. Julia, here's what I can promise you nobody, let alone cracks a 10K or 10Q or looks at 8Ks that are filed. Nobody reads the proxy statements. And there's a reason they don't read the proxy statements. They're really hard to read. Mm
0: -hmm. And they're
1: really complicated. They are not written in English, especially when it comes to compensation. So when I'm really trying to do some work and I look in there, I'll put in, I'll try to find the bonus structure. Sometimes the word bonus works. Sometimes the word incentive works. Sometimes, you know, you look and you're, you're trying to find what is the incentive here? And is it something that's really aligned with shareholders? And even that's subject to interpretation. So he talks about, you know, what's the business model. But I think when he talks about incentive, I think the incentive actually is how are these guys being paid? How are they being compensated? You know, how much are they making from the stock? Is that a good thing or bad thing? Some people say if they're if there's too aligned, that's not a good thing. You know, um, you know, there's currently a big brouhaha on stock buybacks I I used to be a big critic of stock buybacks until I started really getting serious about it and looking at it and I'm not the critic I once was because certain stock buybacks are they are the best investment a company can buy depending on when the stock is the stock is bought. Uh I can show you examples of great companies that have done it that just don't make the news.
0: You know, you mentioned like going through proxy statements, 8K's, 10K's, all these different filings and you're right, they are so difficult to read at times and understand things and I also heard you mention like you're someone in the past, you've raised red flags. If you had to kind of narrow it down, like what are the red flags to you? Maybe they're more of like the red flags today that stand out to you that you look at, even though you're on the long by side, I imagine you still look at these.
1: Oh, being on the long by side is the scariest part of the whole equation, because now that I have the history I have, I'm always worried. Some I mean, I'd somehow get hoodwinked. I'm somehow going to miss something. Because I can't do the depth of work. You know, short sellers, I think, do, there's very clear short sellers do more work in general than short sellers. Though I say that knowing I know value investors who know more about the company than the company itself. Um, so I want to be careful how I say that. I, uh, I think that um, uh, in terms of red flags, I mean, I use some shortcuts right now because I use some data that tries to flag it from some of my friends at Kalish Concepts. They are a quant firm. And so I like using quant data to help flag some potential problems. I think right now, right now that we're talking, I think one of the things I started writing a um, just the other day, yesterday, yesterday, actually, or well, I don't know when you're going to run this. But I just started writing something called the Red Flag Alert as part of my my Substack, uh, my herb on the street of Substack. And also for Empire Research, I'm doing this. And i um, I'm using some lists, and the lists basically boil down to some companies with the crummiest data. Part of it has to do with the level of debt they have relative to their cash, whether their cash flow, the discrepancy between their cash flow earnings and debt. If debt is rising rapidly, cash flow and earnings are falling. That's a red flag, and it's something you could use to look for stocks to avoid. Some people might use it for stocks to short. One of the stocks I I mentioned, then that very next day was down 18 percent by dumb luck on my part, um, but I think that um, you look for that. And if you're using the quant data, you can look for companies that genuinely rank at the bottom of the list. And by backtesting, that would show that they historically would underperform the market. And you look for things where that you can look at, you can look at potential earnings manipulation. There are actual quant tools that can point you in the direction of earnings manipulation. Um, there, The M score is what it's basically been known as. Um, but you look at the components of that, and then you can use that as a jumping off point to do more research, because even the data can be wrong. The data can mis- mislead you. I've seen companies, there's an earnings manipulators list that Kalish puts out, and I've seen companies land on that list and then go off that list. So you have to be careful how you use a list like that, because there can be something going on at the company if for a quarter or two that, you know, doesn't work. Uh, so you know, I'm just looking, I'm doing my same old thing too. You know, I'm, you, you know, you have a hunch as you start going through earnings transcripts and you start looking at how, what company is saying about certain things, um, but you come to it with a long bias. And the big question is, you know, can you follow through? And there are some companies I've held back on just because there's something, you know, competitive or something that concerns me.
0: Yeah. Let me ask this question. And I, I really just, I don't know the answer and I'm not even, maybe it's a concern to have. How about you know we had a decade plus of like low zero interest rates, um, and I'm sure a lot of companies probably were issuing debt. With the rising rates and historically fast too in the last year, do do companies face like debt problems? Or I'm probably phrasing this totally wrong, but do you think of they're that? called like- they're
1: they're well they're called zombie companies. Okay, there are companies that face that face debt issues, and especially companies that loaded up on debt um, when rates were low. Now, it depends on when the maturities of those debts are, the the debt is. So the one issue that you could see any short seller talk about, and I know Jim Chanos has been talking about it, and he and others have pointed that out uh, over and over, and what they're looking at is is companies that have too much debt, and that debt is getting ready to mature, and they have to refinance at high rates. So there's, you know, I'm not the guy who's going to sit here and do the analysis of that in a way that I can be, so conversant on it. I'll look at maturities and see. But there are that is a something any investor should be concerned about. But again, come back to what I said. You have your debt is rising, your earnings are falling, your cash flow is falling, and you have to say something's going on here. Take a look at the balance sheet. What's going on? How, what's happening to the cash position? So these are just basics. But they are signs of companies that do face that potential trap
0: in this conversation, uh, you also brought up Silicon Valley Bank um mm-hmm. and we've had a spate of recent bank failures. Mm-hmm. what are what are your thoughts there? Um, I'm just I'll keep this more of an open question i'm just, I'm just curious <clears throat> like your view of the situation
1: so. What I always find interesting about Silicon Valley Bank is that months before it failed, there were short sellers who were publishing their work on Twitter. They were they were very public about. Um, I think Danny Moses was talking about it on on the on the tape. There were short sellers who were very very open about the problem they saw there with their um, held to maturity book of, of securities of, uh, of bonds and our, of treasuries. And um, so I think it's a, this is a classic case where people didn't see it coming, but what people saw it coming, but the people who should have seen it coming, didn't see it coming because they were so reliant on what management was saying. And it was complex, right? This is not financial services is not everybody's cup of tea. It's not everybody is a good banking analyst. Not everybody has a nose for that. And I think a lot of people, by the way, Julia, are afraid to say that they don't really understand it because they're afraid they'll be laughed out of the room. But the reality is, is most people don't understand everything and most people aren't experts in everything. And, and the accounting for banks is and insurance companies is different than the way you're gonna account for you know, uh, a beverage company. So I think a lot of people missed it. And I think um, it, it was so, I think though the problem we had was the, you really ended up with this, when the venture capitalists said, take your money out to their clients. Instead of stepping in and helping, as they probably should have done, um, that led to the panic. And it went from one to the next to the next. And that's where we are. And I'm not an expert on banks. I, I, I only know what the experts say. And the experts say there will be more. And I wrote a piece the other day about, um, about uh, the short, the, there's claims that the short sellers have caused this. And especially post-SVB. And I wrote a piece pointing out why that may not be the case, why that isn't, well, why it likely isn't the case. And, um, you know, this question is should there be a ban on short selling? And I quote this guy named Harold Bradley. And Harold's this brilliant tr- former trading guy. And he used to be the um, chief investment investment officer of the Kaufman Foundation many years ago. And he was, before that, he was at the American Century Funds. He was a trader. He tra- this guy knows stuff more than most people, and his view, and I quoted him when I was at CNBC in 2010, when we did a man versus versus machine uh, series, and I quoted him as being out that the monster in the markets created by the machines might be the ETFs. And the fact is you have these entities that hold illiquid securities that are traded as a liquid a liquid entity, but because they hold illiquid securities, if people suddenly rush to sell them, those illiquid securities now become a self-fulfilling prophecy because of the creation and destruction process, the sale and the buying and selling process that ETFs use. And that sort of creates a real problem in the market for those kind of securities. In the case of the regional banks, arguably, the regional banks, if you go down the list of the, of the 145 stocks in the uh, the spider uh, regional bank ETF, known as the KRE, you'll see that when you get lower in the list, there are a lot of of small banks there that they have okay volume, but it's not high volume. And in other words, liquidity, which means that it's, it's hard to sell them. So it takes days to get rid of those stocks. So his view was that you have, and this is really interesting. His view is that financial planners and wealth managers and people who use ETFs, they're really just people like you and me. And they freak out like anybody else. And so as they start seeing the banks fail, they're using the ETF and they go, I want a CTF and they run to get out of the ETF. They sell the ETF. Other people are buying puts on the ETF and which again is putting pressure on the ETF. And that's causing the ETF to have to sell the shares. And it's creating a much more uh, profound and exaggerated impact. Um, and by the way, that story gets no attention. I, If anyone Anyone from the financial media is seeing this. They ought to go to find Harold and talk to him because it's a really great story that nobody is talking about.
0: I I mean, I like that you're sharing it on this podcast here because I I find it interesting. I want to go read the piece after. I guess on the short seller thing, it seems like that's a pretty common narrative that comes up is blame the short sellers, or that's an argument that gets made often. Why do you think that is?
1: Well, because of the nature of the stock market. You have to have somebody to scapegoat. And nobody scapegoats somebody who bulls you into a stock that's a fraud. What they do is they scapegoat anything because right, we're all predisposed to wanting things to go up. So when things go down, you have to blame somebody. And it's obviously those darn short sellers who obviously are conspiring to cause the stock to fall. Now, I had this back and forth on Twitter the other day with a colleague of mine, Enrique Beta who's a former hedge fund guy, writes a bunch of newsletters for us. And... His view is with banks and not and financial services companies there's a different standard there should be a different standard um and I just disagree with him because uh again you know you know if there's manipulation I think anyone would say manipulation should be dealt with but you have to prove the manipulation and historically they haven't been able to find the manipulation and You know, they're always trying to find the short sellers or are doing something nefarious, whether it's with the banks or something else, just because they're betting a stock is going to go down. As opposed to the way people should be looking at it is, what are they warning us about? Are they warning us about something that might actually be something we should pay attention to? And that's, you know, when I did the short research, the best comment I could get would be from a subscriber who would say, thank you, you kept us from buying more or because of your work, we sold. They weren't shorting the stock. And that's, that's the part of investing that so many people miss is this whole concept of avoiding loss. And that's a great role the short sellers play in the market and the health of the market. And I think it's a populist, it's not, the populist opinion, if you're a populist politician, especially, you're gonna find something to have on to
0: yeah, well, great insights as well. I want to ask about a couple more topics before I let you go. Um, one of them, uh, and I'm shifting gears here being uh, artificial intelligence, generative AI. And I saw a tweet of yours like companies now blaming Chat GPT for the stock decline. What do you, let me let me hear from you like your thoughts on generative AI or chat GPT and take it wherever you want to take it?
1: Chat GPT is the new weather. They'll start blaming Chat GPT on it. Um, look, I think it's really fascinating. I've done a lot of work on, on generative AI and, and, and on AI. And I think that um, I use generative AI to create images and things like that. I, I think it's really good. Um, I've uh, used it to brainstorm with. I think it can be interesting. Um, I think that uh, the problem I have is that, as I've written, is AI, generative AI started in November. AI has been out there for years and years and years. It's been organically incorporated into lots of manufacturing processes and things like that. Um, but generative AI was something everybody could sort of understand and get their arms around. And it became – so suddenly, it's the new It's the new thing. The, I joke that it's a good thing this is happening when the market is not in the bubble it was in because if it was – all those companies that are private right now would have been rolled out either via SPAC or via IPO. And I'm sure the the bankers are around every one of those private dot AIs that are out there. Um, So I think it's gonna be one of those situations where you have to be very careful as these companies are rolled out because I think one thing we know is there's gonna be a lot of frauds. There's gonna be a lot of companies that just never make it. It's gonna be just like we've seen before with the dot-com era and the internet era in terms of any, any phase. This one's just going to be big. Do I think it's big? Yeah, I think it's big. I think it's a big deal. Uh, I think as it relates to I'm very interested in longevity for obvious reasons. And I think to um, uh, have impact with longevity, uh, helping in medicine. Um, I have friends and I saw uh, Eric Topol is a friend of mine. He's a a physician. He put out he referred to a piece. And a, another friend of mine, uh, Paul Kadrowski, who's a big critic of some of the AI things, they're all saying their concern is that AI can lead to, o- Eric's not saying this, he pointed to a study, but the concern that AI can actually point to overtreatment in medicine because it can, it, you know, there's so many variables. So it can help and it can hurt. And we're gonna see some of that. I mean, you wanna be scared by AI. A friend was showing me the other day, an AI, a private AI, all these are private, right? A private AI company that deals with radar and that it's being used in drones. And it's being used in defense. And no one's paying attention to the company, of course, because it's so under the under the radar. And uh, you know, imagine how this, some of this AI can be used in the future by all sides to attack other sides. So um there's a lot to be seen here. I think it's a big investment theme. I think I'm surprised. I would have thought by now everybody'd be tired by, you know, there's fatigue, there's AI fatigue. Um, I still find myself writing about it. Uh, I think we're going to hit the point where it's going to fall off, just of interest. But then it'll kick up again as some of these companies start coming public, because they're going to go beyond. You know, we know that Microsoft, Google, and some of the others are going to be big. Um, the question is, who's next? I was on CNBC last night. Uh, we were I talking about. I saw you. I was I, in
0: the gym. I saw you.
1: We were <laughs> talking about. So you had the sound down, but what we were saying had you had the sound up was we were talking about IBM. And, you know, IBM suddenly becoming an AI play. And the joke, and it's something I'm going to write about is, you know, what is IBM anyway? You know, you know, and, and what Brian Sullivan asked, he was the host, he said, can they have, can they, is it too late for them? And my answer was, it's not too late for anybody because with AI, this is a black hole of speculation right now. And so the big ones we know are going to be big players in it, right? We don't know if their first mover advantage is going to, give them long-term success, but we know they're all players. Um, But I always come back to the fact that, you know, what changed in November chat? This is all chat GPT. Large language models are just part of it. Yeah. Artificial intelligence, man, it's been moving and grooving all along.
0: So true. The world changed November 30th of last year. I want to ask you one more question. You mentioned that you are, very interested in longevity. And I take it, Herb, when I look at you and I talk to you, you love what you do and you're very good at it too. And I was going to frame this up as what's your interest in longevity? And are you someone who's going to ever retire? Do you want to retire? Just take a few moments.
1: Well, my interest in longevity obviously is my age. And I think when you look at biotech um, and you look at the drive to find new cures and treatments. Um, part of that is that everybody wants to live longer, and at least that's their goal: is to live longer. Although, if you meet people who are 100, many of them actually, it's sometimes it's not easy to live longer. You know, so it's interesting what where that fine line is. But I think longevity is just an interesting theme. Um, it's an investment. It's an interesting investment theme, uh, and it's probably riddled with fraud. Uh, I always say that, see, I I can't, I can't get rid of this. Uh, I think that medical devices, I love medical devices and I know there's good and there's bad and they've been some of the great shorts over time. Um, I'm interested in it because I had a new heart valve put in three years ago, a little over three years ago, cut from here to here and um, went to the Cleveland Clinic and it was such an amazing process. And then to go up to Edwards Life Sciences, which is the company that created the valve that's in my chest and meet the women who sewed my valve, who actually personally put my valve together because all of these are hand sewn, um, makes me intrigued. I I was intrigued that I could come out of a major surgery like that and be sitting at my desk working, you know, with my heart having been stopped for an hour and 10 minutes. And I could come out of a major surgery of having my aortic valve replaced um, with a, uh, you know, bovine, with a cow's, cow's, cow tissue in the valve, an aortic valve replaced, my aortic root replaced, part of my ascending aorta replaced with Dacron and a single bypass of some little thing behind my heart because they were in there anyway. And I was able to do that. And I was able to be back at my desk working, albeit very slow, 11 days later, coming home from Cleveland and just moving on like nothing ever happened. That to me is, you wanna talk about miracles? That's a miracle. And to me, I can only imagine and I watched the replacing valves today aortic valves and where that whole technology is going. So it's going to, so for example, I don't mean to bore you here, but I'm so excited yeah. about this because I was up with Edwards and I was seeing some, I met some patients. There are a lot of people who, they as they age, they, they get very tired. And aortic valve disease is one of the um, most under treated diseases. If you were told you had cancer, stage one cancer, you'd be keeping an eye on it. But if you're told you have a heart murmur, you may not pay attention. And some doctors say, don't worry about it. Wrong answer for many reasons that I won't get into here. So I think with many people get older, they get very tired and sometimes it's the heart valves. One of the valves that fails that gets very hard on people is called the tricuspid valve. It's toward the back of your heart. If I'm, if I have it correctly, it's a hard valve to get to and the mortality rate on that surgery is higher than you would like it's a difficult more difficult surgery Surgery i had is a piece of cake right that's easy so this surgery is very hard and so they've come up with the you've heard of tabert's transcatheter aortic valve replacement they're now moving it to the mitral valve and they're also moving it to the tricuspid and pulmonary valves so the tricuspid i met a guy i met this guy i met a guy i met a guy up at edwards who's from massachusetts And he's 74, 75 years old. He plays for fun. He plays wind instruments. And he also runs a small business, a small packaging business. I sit next to him on the bus. We started talking because we're going from a hotel to Edwards. And I said, and he's telling me a story. And his story is he was feeling worse and worse and worse. So he goes to the doctor. They say, it's your tricuspid valve. And apparently a lot of old people who use, you just seem fatigued. This is the problem they have. But no one's going to go on surgery so he found a doctor in boston at mass general who is part of a trial program to do this transcatheter tricuspid valve repair and he was patient number 20 he was the first patient in the northeast they put the valve in the next day he was as good as new back to playing his wind wind instruments we were talking about retirement and we'll get to retirement now because he and i were talking about retirement and i said so you're not retired. And he said, no, I have no intention. Why would I retire? And this is this whole issue of retirement. And, you know, I'm 70, I'll be 71 um, in June and uh, we'll be on the day of my birthday, we'll be touring the Airbus factory in Hamburg, Germany uh, to see the, A- the, the see them make the A350 that I will have flown out there on, on British Air. Anyway, I'm really looking, I'm really excited about this. So I have this theory about retirement and the wall street journal had a really great story about retirement, a series. It was a big, big thing they did the other day. It's fantastic. I, I keep wanting to write about it, but I've just been too busy. And first sentence was the guy they quoted and he said, I'll retire at my funeral. And I think, and maybe it's, re, maybe it's creative people. You know, you can't turn off creativity. You can turn off sales but you can't turn off entrepreneurial feelings, right? You can turn off if you've been doing something all your life that's hard work. You can turn that off and stop doing it because it's a drudgery. But it's rare that I have a, I don't get excited about what I do. I don't always like what I do. I always joke that writing is hard. Uh, I still remember the moment in Chicago when I transitioned and writing became easier. There was a point where it actually... It was really hard, but I, it happened on news stories. Um, and then when I'm working now, you know, I always talk about how hard it is to start a big project and how I cozy up to it. You're learning about a new company and you don't know what this company does and it takes time and I've done this before, but then you get into it and then it's the puzzle. So when you do what I do for a living, I'm always putting together a jigsaw puzzle, even if it's long biased. I'm still, when you're writing it, you're piecing it together and you're trying to make it work. And even if I'm writing for two people, I'm still writing it. I'm writing it for myself, basically. And that keeps my brain active. And if I'm doing the research and if I'm trying to figure out something I don't understand and it's a new type of, that keeps you fresh. And I've talked to enough people who've retired. Some of them have done very well. They do like playing golf all day. And some people somehow do it. Other people tell you that after six months, it was the most boring thing I could do. Please get me back to, to work somehow. And I think there are plenty of stories about people who retire and they become atrophied and they just go downhill. And I think, you know, you know when you're old, I don't feel old. I, I was, my wife and I were talking about this today. Here's where I feel old. And I know it's old. We like to travel. Jet lag does hit you harder the older you get. So when you're going to another continent, east or west, you, you feel it. And you feel it a little harder than you did when you're younger. Um, you know, so that's where you feel. But you don't feel it. You don't wake up and say, gee, I'm 71. I feel like an old man. I joke about it. But when I turned 70, man, I ran seven miles. I, I jogged and walked seven. I did it. I walk every day. So I walked and jogged. I live in a very hilly area. Seven miles just to you know, represent my, my, my 70 years. And it's just, you know, keep doing it until you can't. I mean, what else would I do? I don't, I don't have a hobby. I mean, this job on my weekends, I mean, my family, I've, I've been able to, 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 to throttle back. I've been able to the velocity of what I do is less, but I still am here. I generally get up about four in the morning. I put the oatmeal on, come in here, get ready, go make the coffee with the oatmeal, come back, start reading stuff. And I'm usually here till four or five o'clock in the afternoon. During that time, I'm also out exercising. If I have to do something else, I do something else. I'm not working on, unless I'm on a project, I'm not on such a deadline that my head's gonna explode. And I'm trying to keep busy and keep engaged with people. I mean, that. I think that keeps you kind of fresh. So that's my view of it. Um, and if I were independently, independently, independently wealthy, meaning I never had to think about it a day in my life, and I didn't want to live a certain lifestyle, I'd still have to do something. I just don't. Know, I don't know how to stop. And, and on one hand, it's an addiction, and I but I think it's a healthy addiction. Um, and you know, and I know I'm not the only one who who has these thoughts.
0: I love that. And I have to say in this entire conversation, there's been you know, many great um, lessons on life and, and investing as well. And it's been an absolute delight having on the show and Herb, I want to give you a few moments. If you want to share where folks can subscribe to your newsletters, read your newsletters, um, okay. follow you on social media and any party thoughts, things that we didn't bring up in this conversation that you'd like to share, please take a moment well, think, to do
1: so. Well, I think we've covered everything. Um, and, and this has been a fantastic interview, and I really appreciate you letting me speak about this because you've hit things other people haven't hit that I think are really important and that I enjoy talking about. Um, you can read me. Um, I work for Empire Financial Research. It is a newsletter company. I write two long biased uh, financial newsletters. One is called the system, QuantX System newsletter, where we use a quant system just to help us select uh, companies. And the other is um, called Empire Real Wealth, where I write about bigger companies. Uh, and um, one is more expensive than the other. Uh, the Empire Real Wealth is the, more the introductory one. And then I write daily. Oh, I, it's We have something we call the Empire Financial Daily. I write for that one, two, three, four times a week, sometimes no times a week. Um, and then I also put that on, link, on my Herb on the Street column on LinkedIn. And then I also just started putting that over on Substack where I have Herb Greenberg slash on the street, but it's Herb, Herb on the street. So I'm also putting the things on, on on Substack where I just started this, also added this new red flags alert, red flag alert, which we'll see how that goes. I'm, I'm, I like to play with things. I like to test things. Um, I, I probably used to drive my business partner crazy at Pacific Square because I'm i always wanting to try things. because. Oh, what if the worst that could happen is it doesn't work, you know. So you try all these new things and and um so that's pretty much where I am. I'm on Twitter. Uh I used to have a blue check. I don't have a blue check. I'm at Herb Greenberg on Twitter. I no longer have a blue check. I I, I think about it from a business perspective. Is that blue check gonna help me or hurt me? And I have no idea. Um uh and I um, am on LinkedIn, obviously, where I do post some things, but and I'm on notes now on Substack, but I'm trying to figure out notes. I don't I don't know notes. I'm on I mean, I'm here, there, and everywhere. But I, uh, you know, so, I would say social media. I'm, I'm on Facebook too, but you know, I keep that pretty private. So, um, yeah, yeah. That's well,
0: it. Herb Greenberg, I've thank, spoken you. thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your ideas. Really appreciate you coming on, and great to see you again,
1: Julia. This has been great. Thank you.
0: Hey everyone, I really hope you enjoyed that video. Be sure to hit that like button, the subscribe, and that bell so you won't miss any new videos.